Well, long before his conversion to Christianity in the first century, Saul of Tarsus, later known, of course, as the Apostle Paul, was well known for his impressive education, having, uh, having studied under the great Rabbi Gamaliel. He was also a powerfully influential Pharisee, and he held the coveted status of Roman citizen. In fact, in his letter to the Philippian church later, he described himself as of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law a Pharisee, as to zeal a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Philippians 3, 5, and 6. Paul was an accomplished intellectual with great influence and power and uh, probably wealth and certainly popularity before his conversion to Christianity. And yet he went on to say that he considered all of that as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ, Philippians 3.8. Now, why would a man who had everything that a man could ever want throw it all away to follow Jesus? Before his conversion in the 17th century, the great mathematician, physicist, and inventor Blaise Pascal was known as a child prodigy. In fact, he made profoundly important contributions to mathematics, science, and economics as a teenager. Yet after converting to Christianity, he abandoned mathematics and physics, instead writing and speaking extensively on biblical theology. And in doing so, he challenged the religious establishment of the day, defying their doctrines and practices of the Pope himself, Pope Alexander VII, and actually infuriating the king. In fact, uh, Pascal's writings were so controversial that King Louis XIV ordered them shredded and burned. His sister Jacqueline came to Christ at the same time he did, and she left her comfortable life to enter the convent at Port Royal, devoting the rest of her days to living out the gospel, while Pascal lived out the rest of his life embroiled in controversy over his stand for the truth of God's word. And having given away later in life his own home to a family who was poor and very sick, Pascal himself died in relative poverty. In his last literary work, he wrote, For after all, what is a man in nature? A nothing in relation to infinity. He is equally incapable of seeing the nothingness out of which he was drawn and the infinite in which he is engulfed. Why would a man with such promise and prestige at such an early age, why would he throw it all away to follow Jesus? Before his conversion to Christianity, Charles Thomas Studd was a famous 19th century English cricketer, a well-known athlete who came to Christ, giving up wealth and fame to live a meager life as a missionary. Against his family's vehement protests and giving up a massive inheritance, he moved to China where he eventually married another missionary, Priscilla Livingstone Stewart, and together they served in China and India, and later alone Charles served in Africa. He later said, I know that cricket would not last, and honor would not last, and nothing in this world would last, but it was worthwhile living for the world to come. Why would a man with such fame and success and respect throw it all away to follow Jesus? Perhaps Pascal said it best when he said, the gospel to me is simply irresistible. You see, throughout history, there have been men and women who have given up, completely sworn off fame 
and wealth and power and influence and material success, everything that you could ever want in this life to follow Jesus Christ instead. Why would they do that? Well, I think it's because for them, the gospel was irresistible and therefore it shaped the rest of their lives, which of course raises the question for all of us today, is the gospel irresistible to you? Or is it in fact resistible? About his conversion, Charles Thomas Studd said, right then and there, joy and peace came into my soul. I knew then what it was to be born again, and the Bible, which had been so dry to me before, became everything. Do you find it nearly impossible to resist reading his words? Or is reading the Bible easy for you to resist? Do you long to spend time in fellowship with Christ in prayer? Or is prayer easy for you to resist? Do you find yourself drawn to God's people? Or is the church easy for you to resist? Do you look for opportunities to share the gospel, the story of Jesus with other people, even in difficult places or in circumstances that are not ideal or is witnessing about Christ something that you find easy to resist? Again, Charles Studd said, Some wish to live within the sound of church or chapel bell. I want to run a rescue shop within a yard of hell. You see, when the gospel is irresistible to you, it becomes evident in how you live your life, in what comes out of you, in the choices you make, in how you spend your time, and where you spend your money, on what you expend your energy upon, which we'll see in our story today as we continue our sermon series, Working Our Way Through the Gospel According to Mark, where Mark recounts a famous parable of Jesus that puts a spotlight on our own hearts, on how receptive we actually are to this gospel that, listen, is meant to pervade, to saturate every single aspect of our lives. You understand, the gospel is meant to be irresistible to us. And yet we know that people resist the gospel every day, don't they? In fact, I believe even many of us who are professing Christians at times resist the gospel in our own lives, and today we're going to find out why and how that gospel, once it becomes truly irresistible to you, how it will completely change what comes out of your life. So let's jump back into the story then where we left off last time. At Mark chapter 4, we'll begin by reading the first nine verses. Again, he began to teach beside the sea, and a very large crowd gathered about him, so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea, and the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things in parables, and in his teaching he said to them, Listen, behold, a sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground, where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up, since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And other seeds fell into good soil, and produced grain, growing up and increasing, and yielding thirtyfold, and sixtyfold, and a hundredfold. And he said, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So Jesus has been preaching in and around Galilee, and the crowds keep getting larger and larger each time he goes out. 
to the point now where he actually has to preach from a boat just off the shore of the Sea of Galilee to keep from getting crushed by the mass of people following him. And in this particular episode, he shares a parable that actually ended up being one of the most important to the early church, which is evidenced by the fact that it appears not only in all three of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but also in the Coptic gospel of Thomas, which is, of course, not included in the Bible, uh, but nonetheless is composed of a collection of 114 sayings that are attributed to Jesus, including this very parable. So it was clearly a profoundly important parable to the early church because of what it says about Jesus and his gospel in relationship to the human heart, as we'll see. And like so many of the parables, Jesus uses the common agricultural practices of the day to make his point in, uh, so that it would make sense to that audience, of course. And so he's in a boat by the shore uh, of the Sea of Galilee, which was and is, by the way, ringed by agricultural fields. In fact, there, there were likely farmers out in the fields sowing in plain sight, in plain view of these masses of people while Jesus was teaching them about the sower sowing his seed. And although the parable itself, uh, with the seed being spread all over different kinds of ground, may not make a lot of sense to us at first glance because of our modern uh, Western farming methods, it would have made perfect sense to the people Jesus was preaching to on that day because, of course, uh, we plow the field before we sow the seed, right? So we churn up the hard ground and we remove all the rocks and we dig up the weeds before we put the seed down. But in the first century in Palestine, that's not how they did it. In Jesus's day, the farmer went out into the field and would indiscriminately throw seed out all over the ground. And we're gonna talk more about that in a moment. And then after all of the seed was distributed, he would take what amounted to a pointed stick and walk along the field scoring the ground in rows so that the seed could sink into the soil and hopefully take root, which explains why the seed was being sown in different types of soil to begin with. And so just keep all of that in mind as Jesus explains the parable further to his disciples, but not before he comments on the purpose of the parables in the first place. So let's keep reading verses 10 through 12. And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. And he said to them, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see but not perceive, and may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. A lot of Christians struggle with this passage because it sounds like Jesus doesn't want the crowds of people to understand the truth that he's teaching, right? So why bother teaching them? But you have to consider, first of all, that verse 12 is Jesus actually quoting Isaiah 6, 9, and 10, where God told Isaiah to deliver a message to the people, even though God knew they were not going to accept it. He knew they would reject the message which relates directly to this parable, as we'll see in a moment. So Jesus is comparing the people of his day to the people in Isaiah's day who, as a result of hearing the truth, rejected that truth. Secondly, uh, the phrase so that in verse 12 is the ancient Greek word henna, which also means as a result. So it has to do with the result of something. And so again, the result of Jesus sharing the truth 
was that most people did not receive it just as it was in Isaiah's day, which thirdly lines up perfectly with the account of this same parable in Matthew 13, 10 through 17 and Luke 8, 9 and 10, which both spell out the fact that it was because of the people's hardness of heart that the gospel was not being received, not because Jesus didn't want them to receive it. And that becomes clear as he further explains the parable to his disciples, as we'll see in a minute. So why then uh, is Mark's wording of the same account different than those accounts in the other Gospels? Well, it's quite simple. Actually, Mark was quoting from a different translation of the Old Testament. Mark was quoting Isaiah from the Targum rather than, rather than from the Hebrew version uh, of Isaiah. The Targum was a collection of ancient Aramaic paraphrases of the Old Testament text that were used in the synagogue readings by the rabbis of the day. So it's simply a matter of the wording being slightly different. So you understand, even at the time, there were different translations of the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament today. There was the Hebrew uh, translation of the Old Testament. There was the Septuagint the ancient Greek translation of the Old Testament. There was the Targum, the Aramaic translation of the Old Testament, and others. And so Mark is simply uh, quoting from a different source. All right. The point being, there's no question actually about what Jesus meant as it becomes even more clear as he continues to explain in further detail this parable. So let's keep reading then, verses 13 through 20. And he said to them, Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word, and these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy, and they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones sown among thorns. These are the ones who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. So Jesus now unpacks the parable even further for his disciples, and there are three distinct elements to the story that all deserve attention. The first being the sower. Okay, the sower being Jesus. He says the sower sows the word. And of course, at that time, it was obviously Jesus sowing the word or preaching the word then. And likewise, it is the Spirit of Christ who sows the word through us today. Furthermore, uh, in another agricultural parable, Matthew, uh, in Matthew, Jesus says the one who sows the good seed is the Son of Man. Matthew 13, 37. So we know that Jesus is the sower whose intent behind sowing the seed is made clear in the story because he's described, listen, he's described as spreading the seed over every type of soil. Not just the soil that will ultimately receive the seed that is significant. In other words, if God only intended for some people to receive the gospel, then he would only sow the seed in one very limited part of the soil. But that's not what he does. He sows the seed over all of the soil. Why? Well, I'll tell you why. Because God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish 
but have eternal life because God our Savior desires all people, all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. 1 Timothy 2, 3, and 4. Listen. Why would God desire all people to be saved if his plan from the beginning was for only some people to be saved? Why would God desire something that his plan does not allow for that would make God senseless? And of course, we know that's not the case. Certainly God has known since long before any of us were created who would accept him and who would reject him because God is outside of space and time. But his desire clearly is for every single human being to accept the gospel, which is why he spreads the seed over all of the soil. And when accepted, as we'll see, when allowed to take root in our lives, the gospel becomes irresistible, something we cannot live without and do not want to live without because of what it produces in our lives. Which leads us to the second element of the story, which is the seed, the word of God. Of course, Jesus says as much in verse 14, the sower sows the word. It's the word logos in the ancient Greek. It refers to the essential word of God. James, the brother of Jesus, said, receive with meekness the implanted word, logos, which is able to save your souls. The word implanted there being the key, which we're going to see in the last point of this message. But listen, the seed is the word, the gospel of Jesus Christ, which, believe it or not, is becoming increasingly lost on much of the modern church today. Okay, the, the seed that Jesus sows, and consequently the seed that we have been commanded to sow, is not random acts of kindness. It's not unconditional love. It's not unfettered acceptance. It's certainly not cultural relevance. Now listen. There are elements of all of that in the gospel, absolutely. But we cannot cull out the parts of the gospel that we don't like, keeping only the parts that we do like, and then claim that we're spreading God's word. Yet that is precisely what a lot of professing Christians are doing today. But look, a partial gospel will never be an irresistible gospel, because a partial gospel will always be an inadequate Gospel, which is just what we see in the church all the time. It's a fact. People who hang their commitment to Christ and his word on only one or more elements of the gospel, but not the entire gospel, ultimately fall away from the faith every single time. Why? Because the gospel they believe in is inadequate to save them or anybody else. When you sow the parts of the gospel you like, to the exclusion of the parts you don't like, you may be sowing positive thoughts and good vibes, but you are decidedly not sowing God's word into people's lives. Which is why I believe we're seeing so many people who once professed to be Christians leaving the church and indeed leaving the faith today because for too long the church has sown a partial gospel into human hearts in the hopes of attracting more people by being more culturally acceptable when in fact that strategy has produced the very opposite effect. More people are leaving the church today than are coming. Why? Because we've sold them a gospel that is entirely resistible inadequate. So listen, 
we really have to get this right because although there will, of course, always be people who resist the gospel, even when offered in its entirety, there are also untold numbers of people all around us who are actually ready to receive the gospel. Their hearts are broken and open and ready to receive good seed. And I'm telling you, to someone who is longing for the truth, the good news of the gospel is irresistible. Leads us to the final element of this story, the soil, which of course is the human heart. Remember, in this particular parable, Jesus is the sower. And there's no variation in him according to James 1.17. So there's no variation in the sower. And the seed that he sows is always the pure, unadulterated, unaltered gospel. So there's no variation in the seed, Matthew 24, 35. And so the only thing in this story in which there is variation is the soil, the human heart. And so that's where we're going to spend the rest of our time this morning as Jesus outlines four different types of soil or four different conditions of the human heart. In verse 4, he explains that as he sowed, some seed fell along the path and the birds came and devoured it. And then he further explains in verse 15 that these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. So the first type of soil that Jesus describes is hard soil. Okay, in ancient Palestine, People either walked everywhere they went or they rode on animals. And of course, there were agricultural fields everywhere. And so in order to accommodate travel without destroying the agricultural fields that one had to inevitably travel through in order to go anywhere, the farmer would segment his fields into long, narrow furrows or rows, which would then be bordered by paths for people to travel on and also for the farmer, of course, to be able uh, to access his crops without walking on them. And so over time, in that very dry climate, those beaten down paths became extremely hard. In fact, impenetrable by the seed, even though the seed was broadcast over the entire field, including those pathways going through the fields. And so the birds, of course, would simply swoop down and eat the seed off of the path. And so Jesus was likening the hardened soil to the hardened human heart, those who would never receive the seed. And of course, we know that not everyone will receive the gospel, right? In the end, Jesus said, enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. So we know that not everyone, no matter how hard we try, no matter our efforts, not everyone will receive the gospel in the end. But listen, only God knows who ultimately will receive salvation and who will not. And so I really just want to encourage you today that no matter how hard a person's heart may be toward the gospel, don't ever stop praying for them. Don't ever stop sharing the whole gospel with them. Don't ever stop believing for their salvation because as long as they're breathing, the hope of Christ is available to them just as as much as it is to anyone else, which is proven by the fact that the birds, Satan, swoops in and tries to steal the seed. 
Why would he do that? Because he understands the power of the gospel to penetrate even the hardest of hearts. And so yes, there are those who will remain deceived and devoid of ever receiving the seed because they allow the enemy to steal it away from them and in, uh, as a result their hearts remain hardened. But listen, we don't know who those people are, and it's not our job to know. Our job is to continue broadcasting the seed over all of the soil, even the hardest of soil, and then leave the breaking up of the ground, the preparation of the soil. We leave that up to God. The second type of soil is the rocky soil. In verses 5 and 6, Jesus said, Other seed fell on rocky ground where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. So again, in Palestine, there's this limestone rock everywhere. It's just beneath the surface of the ground. And yet, when the farmer would plow up the ground, because they didn't plow very deep, often the plowed soil was sitting right on top of that rock without the farmer even knowing it. And so the seed would initially be received by that soil, and yet there was no depth of soil for that seed to fully take root. And so the plant would begin to spring up quickly. But because it had no real root under the ground deeply in to sustain it, as soon as the sun beat down on that plant, of course, it would wither and die. And so Jesus went on to explain, these are the ones sown on rocky ground. The ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. So these are the people who respond favorably to the gospel, but they do so without counting the cost of actually following Jesus. They never seem to understand that being a Christian will actually cost them something. There's no depth to their understanding, and so the gospel never fully takes root in their lives. And so Jesus says, when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. The word tribulation there is the ancient Greek word thlipsis. It literally means pressure. And so the moment pressure is applied to these folks who profess to be Christ followers, pressure by a friend or pressure by a relative or by an employer or a spouse or anyone else they're influenced by, they fall away from the faith because they never actually counted the cost of following Jesus to begin with, which is exactly what Jesus warned us about in Luke 14 uh, from about verse 25 on to the end of that chapter. The fact that there is a very real cost to following him. I mean, the truth is, following Jesus at times will cost you friendships. It will. It will cost you relationships with family and neighbors and coworkers. For many, it has cost them their jobs, their source of income, their status in the community, not to mention in the other parts of the world where the gospel often costs people their freedom and at times even their own life. But that's what Jesus meant when he said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Luke 9, 23. So look, 
If the foundation of your commitment to Christ is really nothing more than the fact that you enjoy uh, the Christian culture of the modern church or uh, the conservative social and moral values that are often associated with Western Christianity or uh, the friendships that you enjoy in the church, if your profession of faith in Jesus Christ is rooted in anything other than the person of Jesus Christ, then there is no depth to the root of your faith. And I'm telling you, the moment professing to be a Christian begins to cost you something, you will fall away. I can't tell you how many times I've witnessed people who come to the church and in a moment of excitement upon hearing the gospel in a service or in a small group, they say a sinner's prayer and make a profession of faith. But the moment they start dating someone that they really want to be with, someone who doesn't share their faith, or, or they're asked to serve in the ministry, which of course can be thankless at times, or some other opportunity arises in their life that excites them more than the gospel, they fall away and you never see them again. Why? Because there was never any depth to the root of their faith. Charles Spurgeon once said, then there are many more whose religion must be sustained by enthusiastic surroundings. They seem to have been baptized in boiling water and unless the temperature around them is kept up to that point, they wither away. The religion that is born of mere excitement will die when the excitement is over. Let's continue. The third type of soil that Jesus mentions is the thorny soil. In verse 7 he said, Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. Okay, aside from the uh, abundance of rock in the soil, the other enemy of the farmer uh, that Palestinian fields were famous for was the thorns and thistles that grew everywhere, and they were quite hard to control. And so Jesus says, These are the ones who hear the word, but the cares of the world. And the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. In other words, these are the people who are open to receiving the gospel. The problem is, they're open to receiving just about everything else as well. <clears throat> and so the gospel may begin to grow there, but so does everything else. And before long, the desire for other things begins to crowd out and ultimately choke out the gospel in their lives. And I would say that of the three types of soil listed in this parable that never fully allow the gospel <clears throat> to take root in the human heart, <coughs> this one in particular, I believe, is by far and away the most common in the American church today. Listen, if you have a garden, <clears throat> then you already know that to keep your plants healthy and growing and ultimately producing fruit, then you have to, with vigilance and, in fact, ruthlessness, get rid of every single weed and thorn and thistle that grows up next to those plants, right? Otherwise, what happens? You won't have those plants for long, and they certainly won't produce the fruit that they're intended to produce. And so, <clears throat> when I have a vegetable garden, I'm just telling you, the weeds are not safe. They're given no quarter. They're not tolerated for any length of time. Why? Because the first thing they do is steal the nutrients from the soil that my vegetables need to continue growing. And left to their own devices long enough, they will completely choke out the vegetable plants. So what do I do with the weeds? Do I worry about their feelings? No. 
do I wonder what they will think of me if I refuse to let them hang around? No. Do I make sure they get treated fairly, the same as the vegetable plants, just in case the weeds might somehow start producing good fruit themselves? No. So what do I do with the weeds? I yank them out of the soil by their roots. Why so harsh? Because the fruit that is produced by the vegetable plants is so irresistible compared to what the weeds offer me that I wouldn't dream of not protecting them. Yet there's so many people in the church today professing believers who allow every kind of errant doctrine and alternative gospel and desires for this world to remain in their lives right alongside the word of God. And listen, when you do that, what you don't realize is the fact that everything that is contrary to his word that you allow to remain in your life is leeching away your spiritual health. It's slowly stealing the truth that you once claimed to believe in. You see, when you fail to guard the word of God that was once planted in your heart, eventually that word will be completely choked out of your life. I have good friends, family in fact, people who I love very much who have done exactly that. They accepted the gospel, but they didn't guard it. They didn't nurture it. Instead, they allowed the desires of this world and the lies of the enemy to remain in their lives until his word was completely choked out. And listen, this goes for all of us. We have to be vigilant when it comes to guarding our hearts and minds with the word of God because it is so easy to allow the seemingly harmless weeds and thorns to grow up right beside us, not realizing what they're stealing from us until their roots are so deep in our lives that they begin to choke out his word in our hearts. It's precisely why the apostle Paul said we destroy. He didn't say we damage He didn't say we ignore. He didn't say we tolerate. He certainly didn't say we entertain. He said we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. 2 Corinthians 10.5, which brings us to the final type of soil in the parable, the good soil. Verse 8, Jesus said, Other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding 30-fold and 60-fold and 100-fold, okay? An average uh, harvest in ancient Palestine would have been about seven or eight times the amount of seed that was sown. And an, an exceptionally good harvest would have been 10 times the seed that was sown. And so for a harvest to yield 30-fold or 60-fold or 100-fold would have been miraculous, An act of God, actually. And so Jesus says, but those that were sown in the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit 30-fold and 60-fold and 100-fold. Verse 20, these are the true believers, the ones who find the gospel to be so irresistible that they receive it and then allow it to take deep root in their lives and then they protect it from unhealthy influences and as a result, their lives produce spiritual fruit that can only come from God. Well, what about all the others? Well, interestingly, verse four, when it came to the hard soil, Jesus said that it fell along the path. And then in verse 5, when it came to the rocky soil, he said that it fell on rocky ground. 
Then in verse 7, when it came to the thorny soil, he said that it fell among thorns. But when he gets to verse 8, he says that the seed fell into good soil. You see, it's, it's the only soil where the Word of God is actually able to fully take root. And although some true believers and followers of Christ obviously produce more fruit than others, right? Some 30-fold, some 60-fold, some 100-fold. Even though we all produce different amounts of spiritual fruit, listen, every single true believer and follower of Jesus Christ produces spiritual fruit. The fact is that is the distinguishing mark of all true believers, we all produce fruit, according to Jesus in Matthew 7, 15 through 20, in addition to what he says in this parable. So look, we really all need to be honest with ourselves in regard to what is coming out of our lives. Are you actually producing good spiritual fruit? Because if the gospel is irresistible to you, then there will be evidence of that in what comes out of your life, in every area of your life, in the choices you make. Listen, we're not talking about a perfect life. We're talking about a fruitful life in the choices you make, in how you spend your time, in where you spend your money, on what you expend your energy upon, right? Uh, no one looks at an apple tree and then wonders if it's producing apples. No, because the apples are either hanging on the tree or they're not. It's obvious to everyone who looks at that tree. And so listen, there's an easy way to determine whether or not your life is producing spiritual fruit. Just ask yourself, if you renounced your faith in Jesus Christ and his gospel tomorrow, what would change in your life? What would change as far as what's coming out of your life? Because if the answer is not much of anything, then maybe your spiritual health is not where it could be or where it should be. Maybe you've actually been resisting the gospel in your life without even realizing it to the point that there are other things stealing the spiritual fruit from your life that you could be producing. And by the way, that other people need because when the gospel is irresistible to you, there will be 30-fold and 60-fold and even 100-fold harvest of spiritual fruit coming out of your life. And it will be undeniably clear to everyone around you because that kind of harvest can only come from God. So look, if you want to produce the kind of spiritual fruit in your life that God created you to produce, the kind that you can't help but producing when the gospel is irresistible to you, then you're going to have to do some gardening. For some of you, you're going to have to break up the ground in your heart that you've allowed to harden. And maybe it's been walked over one too many times. You've allowed it to harden and become dry and resistant to the word of God. If so, listen, it's time to let Jesus Christ break up that hard ground in your life so you can once again receive his word. And I know plowing is hard work, but it must be done. It must be done before your heart can accept what he's offering you. For some of you, you're going to have to dig a little deeper within yourself because your faith is too shallow. So the roots of his word haven't been able to get down 
deep into your heart. And if you've ever planted a garden, you know that the first time you dig up the soil, getting rid of the rocks is a lot of work. But they have to go. They have to go if the roots of his word are to grow deep in a way that your faith will sustain you through the storms of life. For some of you, you're going to have to get ruthless with some weeds, some thorns, some thistles that you've allowed to hang around in your life for far too long because they've been stealing from the best parts of you. And if you allow them to remain, eventually they will choke out any chance you have of producing the fruit that God created you to produce. And again, if you have a garden, then you already know that weeding is a lot of work, but it never stops because the weeds never rest. Day after day, as you pull out those weeds by the roots, what happens? New weeds show up, small at first, seemingly harmless which is why you have to be vigilant, ruthless with those weeds, in fact, because as harmless as they may appear under the surface, they're stealing from you, slowly, constantly leeching away at your spiritual health. So maybe, maybe it's time to do a little gardening, to prepare our hearts to receive all the good seed that God is offering us. And by the way, you'll know exactly when your heart is where it needs to be because when the conditions are right, when the soil of your heart is soft and deep and pure, the gospel will come alive in you in ways that it never has before. It will be exciting. It will be challenging. It will be consuming. It will be profoundly life-changing. Fact is, it will be irresistible. Let's pray.